Well, if you have a Bible, go ahead and uh, turn to the book of James. Pastor David and I were talking this week, realizing that we are, uh, we're rounding the corner uh, in James, and so thinking about what, uh, what's coming next. So probably announce something here shortly about where we're going to be, but we're, we're kind of in the home stretch here in James uh, as we begin uh, chapter 4 today. So a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the power of the tongue uh, and how our words can bring life or bring death and how it doesn't make sense for someone to praise God and curse people uh, out of the same mouth. And so James showed us how our tongues can be problematic, and I think we all can relate to that because we've all said things probably that we regret. Uh, we've all said things probably that, um, you know, we know uh, were things that ought not to be said. Last week, uh, Pastor David shared with us an analogy of driving in two different lanes, and if you weren't here uh, for that, I would encourage you to jump online uh, and listen uh, to that message. He, he talked to us about um, the solution to our troubled tongues is to seek wisdom from above, right, uh, and compared it to driving in two lanes that are marked with different kinds of road signs. And today we're going to see some rationale behind uh, both the problem of our tongues and, and the solution of seeking wisdom from above. So we're going to be in James chapter 4, and we're going to look at the first uh, 12 verses of James 4. So I'm going to read right now the first four verses, and it says this, uh, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend with the world makes himself an enemy of God. And James, uh, when he started out this section on the tongue, it was kind of harsh. Um, and, and this week continues, he, he has some, some pretty harsh things to say, some very black and white things to say. He's drawing a line uh, in the sand, and he starts off by asking a question that I think is pretty rhetorical, given what we've talked about for the last couple of weeks. But he asks us, what causes quarrels and fights among you? We, we know the answer to that, especially if, if you've been with us in the last couple of weeks. Uh, you know that um, the terrible things that come out of our mouth uh, causes quite uh, fights and quarrels. If we didn't have the ability to speak, I, I suspect that we might fight and quarrel a bit less. Not, not that it would probably go away entirely, but, but if we didn't have the ability to use our mouths um, and, and say the thoughts that are inside of our brains, uh, we probably wouldn't fight and quarrel quite as much uh, as we do. But we've been talking about the tongue um, in this section, and James uh, asking this rhetorical question, what causes fights and quarrels among you? It's because you say things that you ought not to say. You praise God out of one side of your mouth and you curse uh, your brother out of the other side of your mouth. And all of this is a result, he tells us, because our, the passions inside of us are at war. He goes into this diatribe of saying, you desire and you don't have, so you murder, you covet and you can't obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You don't have because you don't ask, and when you do ask, you don't receive because you ask wrongly, he points out to us. And we ask in order to spend things on our passions. And so he kind of book, bookends passions with in-between, talking about our desires, uh, our covetousness, our selfishness. 
And so at the end of the day, what, what he's trying to show us here is that, that the things that cause fights and quarrels among us is that we're a selfish people. We're a selfish people that, that our passions are at war within us, and if my passion comes up against your passion, I'm going to fight with everything I have in order to fulfill my passion. Every single one of us wants to be satisfied in life, right? If, if I pulled the room and said, raise your hand if you want to be satisfied, every hand would probably go up. If your hand didn't go up, we would look at you like there's maybe something weird happening there if you don't want to be satisfied. And so we fight for satisfaction. We work jobs so that we can make enough money to be satisfied. We engage in hobbies, things that we enjoy to do, all so they can bring us satisfaction. And I'm not going to stand up here and say that, that this desire for satisfaction is wrong because I don't think that the book of James is telling us that, that that desire in and of itself is wrong. But we can take good things and make them things that are bad things. And James is telling us that our passions are at war within us. For the Christian especially, we have, we have the spirit and the flesh, the Apostle Paul tells us, and the spirit and the flesh war against one another like this tug of war pulling us this way and pulling us that way. And if you're like me, some days you feel like maybe one side wins out over the other, maybe one side wins out more often than the other side, right? But, but we have this tug of war going on in us, pulling us in various directions. And it's because of this tug of war inside of us, our desires, our selfish desires, that we fight and that we quarrel among one another. Think about if, there, if, there, if nobody was selfish, right? We, we all have selfishness, whether you recognize it or not, it's, all, it's there, right? We all have selfishness. If nobody was selfish, w- would there be war in the world? Probably not. If nobody was selfish, would there be conflict in the world? Probably not. Or if we all had this posture of selflessness, if we all had a posture of humility, there just wouldn't be conflict in the world. Right? We, we just gathered, some of us, with friends and family over Thanksgiving, and some of you may have had a contentious holiday because that's just the way it is in families sometimes. And, and these contentions arise out of our own selfish desires. And so then James just calls out and says, you adulterous people, right? Harsh words from James, you adulterous people. And he reminds us that friendship with the world is enmity with God or war with God. It would be another way to say that. Friendship with the world is to be at war with God. Have you ever thought about yourself as being at war with God? Probably not. We don't tend to think of ourselves that way. Right? If, if we believe that God exists, if we believe that He's the creator of everything, if we believe that He's sovereign over all, meaning that He controls everything that happens everywhere all of the time, it would be silly to go to war with such a being, right? And so we don't think of ourselves as being at war with God, but we do try hard often to be friends with the world and to be friends with God. Whether you recognize that or not, um, and I think we tend to do a pretty good job of that, and I'm not, that's not a pat on the back. That's, that's a little more of an indictment to say that we do a pretty good job of, of trying to have kind of a foot in both worlds, right? Foot in the world, a foot in heaven. And James calls that adulterous. He, he likens it to an adulterous affair. To continue on from last week with Pastor David's analogy, James is telling us that we have a tendency to drive in the wrong lane. Remember last week when Pastor David talked about the road signs that are part of your lane? 
You might have road signs that are things like bitterness, things like jealousy, things like contentiousness. And if those are your road signs, you're driving in the lane of being a friend with the world. But there's this other lane, too, that you might be driving in, and those kinds of road signs are that you're peaceable and that you're pure and that you're humble. And that's a sign that you're, those are signs that you're driving in the road lane of heaven. The one lane that's filled with bitterness and jealousy and selflessness and falsehood, that lane is earthly and unspiritual and vile and demonic, James says. Again, harsh words. The other lane that's characterized by purity and peace and gentleness and reasonableness and mercy and impartiality and sincerity, that lane that lane is the humble lane, and that lane, James tells us, is the lane of righteousness. Think about it this way. James might be making a statement here about our ability to try and drive in both lanes. Right? Have you ever driven down the road and you think, okay, I'm going to be in the right lane, then I'm going to switch over to the left lane, I'll go a little faster, pass a few cars, get back into the right lane? What James is not saying here is that these are parallel lanes that we can just switch back and forth between at our leisure, even though we kind of treat them that way. James says that our passions are at war and they're pulling us in all kinds of directions, and because of this, it puts us in a default state of being at war with God. And this is all on our part in an effort, as I mentioned, to find satisfaction in any way that we can. Author and pastor Tim Keller says that gospel humility means that I stop connecting every experience and turning every conversation towards myself and my own self-interest. So again, we can see the difference of what it looks like in driving in one lane versus the other. One lane is completely selfish and one lane is all about me. One lane, my passions are winning over. The other lane, <clears throat> the godly lane, means, according to Keller, that we stop making life about us. We stop connecting everything in life and turning it in towards ourselves, and we look heavenward and we look towards God. We're not necessarily looking out first and foremost for our own self-interest. Number one is not the most important thing that there is. Living in humility brought about by a belief in the gospel is driving in the lane of humble righteousness. And like I said, these are not parallel lanes that are necessarily going the same direction. These are lanes that go in opposite directions. One lane, if you will, goes to the east, and the other lane, if you will, goes to the west. They go in opposite directions, and so it's not like we can cruise down the road and just go back and forth between this lane and that one. James is telling us that this, this doesn't work, living in a way that we can just switch lanes as it suits us. We can't drive in both lanes because they're not going to the same place, and they're not going the same direction. I don't know how many of you have uh, been up towards Sun River lately, but there's a big construction project going on where they're cutting down a bunch of trees on the highway, and it's because they're going to divide the lanes. They're going to divide the northbound and the southbound lanes, and we can see what they're doing. And what James is doing for us here is he's doing a similar construction project in our hearts, dividing the lanes, showing us how the lanes are divided and how they're going in opposite directions. And he's calling us not to drive in the lane of self, not to drive in the lane where, where I'm the most important thing, where I'm the center of my universe. He's calling us out of that lane, saying that, that lane, like it's not going in a good direction. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that that particular lane, it ends in one way and it ends in death. It actually begins in death and it ends in death. 
And James is reminding us, we, we don't want to, there's this other lane that maybe begins as we are born dead to our trespasses, Ephesians 2 tells us, but this other lane that James is calling us to leads us to life. It leads us to life in Christ. He goes on to say in verse 5 through 10, he says, Or do you not suppose it of no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep, and let your laughter be turned to mourning, so that you uh, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. More harsh language from James. Like he's calling us some names here. He's calling out people who are driving in the wrong lane or trying to drive in both lanes as adulterous. And he's telling us here how we can change lanes. He asks us a question, do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says God is jealous for the Spirit that He has made to be in us? Have you ever thought about the jealousness of God? His jealousy for His people? Exodus 34, verses 10 to 16, God says this, He said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people, I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation, and all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram, for you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous, with a capital J, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice, and you take their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. Again, more strong language in the Bible as it pertains to which lane we're driving in. And we're told here in Exodus that God is, his name is jealous, with a capital J. Not just that he is jealous, but his name is jealous. God is jealous when he sees us driving in the wrong lane. Likened to a husband who loves his wife, God yearns jealously after those who take his name. And this isn't a jealousy like what you and I have, right? We, our, our jealousy is tainted with our sin. Our jealousy uh, on a human level is tainted with our imperfection. It's tainted with our brokenness. God's jealousy is not tainted with sin or brokenness or imperfection or anything like that. God's jealousy for his people is a perfect jealousy. It's a jealousy that says, I created you and you belong to me and I yearn for you to take my name and to live with me. That's the jealousy that God has for us. It's a loving jealousy. It's a jealousy that looks out for our best interests. God's jealousy is not a jealousy that, that gets angry because it was wronged. That, that's how we would function, right? That's, that's our human jealousy. 
God's jealousy is perfect. And, and it's all centered around his, his desire, his love for the humanity that he graciously created. And so then James again asks the question, do you suppose it's no purpose that the Scripture says that God is jealous for you? Of course there's a purpose that the Scripture says not only that God is jealous for us, but that God is jealous. And what is it that he's jealous for? James says, for the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Ephesians 1, 11 to 14 says that in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him, were sealed with the promise, the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. There's some confusion in the church often about who the Holy Spirit is and what the Holy Spirit does, and we don't have time today to unpack all of that. But, but this tells us that God has sealed us with the promise of the Holy Spirit. And that, that seal, that promise of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit that He puts in us, is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So just like in an earthly sense, we, we make wills, right? And we put people in our will as a guarantee that they're going to inherit what we say that they're going to inherit when our life comes to an end. The Bible tells us that, that God puts in us at the moment of salvation His Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and that Spirit, that deposit in us is a guarantee that we're going to inherit what He says that we're going to inherit. And God's jealousy is for that Spirit in us, for that Spirit that dwells inside of those who take the name of Christ. The Bible refers to the people of God in an analogous sort of way, as the bride of Christ, right? So, so this whole thing about jealousy, think, think about how jealous you are for your spouse and know that God is far more jealous for you and his jealousness is perfect. He's so jealous for you that he has deposited in you as a follower of Christ his spirit so that we would know that we would have a guarantee, that we would have some assurance that we belong to him and that we're going to inherit what he says that we're going to inherit. So it might sound like bad news to say that God is jealous when we drive in the wrong lane, but it's actually good news because God is not mad at us for driving in the wrong lane. God is not mad at us for pursuing our passions and our desires, but it's because God loves us that he says, that's not good for you and it's not the way that I created you and it's not the way that I designed you. Don't do that. There's a better way. There's a better way. James tells us that he gives us more grace. Kind of in this, this diatribe of James here, calling us some names, calling us adulterous, telling us that God yearns for us. He also tells us that God gives us more grace. And that's good news. Grace by its nature is undeserved. God's grace is his unmerited favor towards us. Right? We, we've done nothing as sinful humans to merit God's grace. We've done a lot as sinful humans to not deserve God's grace. 
But not only does he give grace, James says he gives more grace. Just when we think that his grace might run out, just when we think we've reached the limits of his grace, James tells us that he gives more. There's more grace to be had from God. God is gracious towards humanity, giving us every opportunity to change lanes, giving us every opportunity to drive towards him because he's gracious to us. He opposes the proud. He opposes the person driving away from him. He opposes the person driving in the eastbound lane that's marked with bitterness and that's marked with wrath and that's marked with evil. God opposes the proud. And again, if if God is the creator of all, if he's sovereign over all, if he's all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful, which we believe that he is, you don't don't want to be at war with that guy because that's a war that you cannot and will not win. And James is telling us that God opposes the person that's in that war. God opposes the person that's driving in that direction, but to the imperfect person, the person that realizes their imperfection, the person that realizes their sinfulness, the person that's driving in the westbound lane heading towards God, even in your imperfection, even in your sinfulness, even in your brokenness, James tells us that he, he gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to the person that says, I need to be fixed. He gives grace to the person that says, I blew it today in my imperfection. God help me. He gives grace and more grace and more grace and more grace. Another way to say it would be that God is opposed to those who are selfish and arrogant and driving in that lane, but he gives grace to those who are humble and driving in the direction that goes towards him. And then James goes on to give us an idea about if you're sitting here thinking, man, I'm, I'm driving in the wrong direction, now what? James answers that question. He says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. If you're sitting here thinking, man, I'm driving the wrong way, I'm driving the way of selfishness, I'm driving the way of arrogance, driving the way of bitterness, I see those signs on the road, James says, Here, here's how you make a lane change when there doesn't seem to be any apparent way to get off the freeway. Submit yourselves to God. And what does that look like? He says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. I don't know if you're, if you're like me. I'm guessing that, that maybe many of you are like me. That some, Sometimes you, just, you feel like just temptations are coming at you all the time. You might feel like at times... I know what I'm about to say or what I'm about to do is wrong, but there's something in me that I just have to do it. Right? You might feel like that. I feel like that sometimes. Sometimes you might feel like I I can't not give in to sin. And James tells us that if we resist the devil, and granted this is not an easy thing to do, it's not just as simple, it's, it's, it's really not simple, it's a difficult thing to do, but if we resist the devil, he's gonna go away. Right, he's going to go away. You ever had maybe, maybe when you were growing up, like the, the high school bully, middle school, high school bully? Oftentimes those bullies, if, if you just didn't pay much attention to them, eventually they would go away, wouldn't they? They would, they would stop doing what they were doing. Right? This is kind of the same thing. Right? If we don't give in to the devil, eventually he's going to flee. But it's not that we just resist the devil. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So there's kind of some different sides of this equation. 
It's not enough that we just resist the devil because the devil's going to keep coming back. In our submission to God, there's two sides of this coin, that we resist the devil and at the same time that we draw near to God. We resist the devil and we draw near to God. Remember, God opposes the proud. God opposes the person that says, I can do this on my own. I can resist the devil. God opposes that person. But God gives grace to the humble and says, God, I can't do this on my own. God, I need your help to resist the devil. I don't have it in me. Because the reality is that the things that the devil tempts us with, the, the reason that they're tempting is because we're, we're drawn to that. We, we want satisfaction. Right? The, the devil does not tempt me with broccoli because I hate broccoli. Right? That's not the way that the devil works. He tempts us with things. Sorry, that was a dumb analogy. But, but the devil tempts us with things that, that we're going to go for. Right? He's going to put, put a hook out in front of us that we're going to bite on because he's crafty. And so it's not enough that we just resist, that we have to draw near to God. And we resist the devil and we draw near to God, then we have a fighting chance to go from this lane to that lane. Right? This is God's formula for changing lanes. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. I don't think James is just trying to be mean here and calling us sinners, calling us double-minded, calling us weak, those kinds of things. He's encouraging us in this to take a posture of humility. Realize that you're not perfect. Maybe most of you already know that about yourself. Realize that you're susceptible to the temptation that comes from the devil. Realize that, that you have a tendency to be double-minded, thinking I can switch lanes and drive in this one and that one and make it work. Realize that doesn't work. And in your realizing of that, James is saying, humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. And this makes me think of the parable of the prodigal son. Maybe it's something that you're familiar with, maybe not. And I'll, so I'll just paraphrase the story here. That there was a son that went to his father before his father died and said, Dad, I, I want my inheritance now. And the dad graciously gave the son his inheritance. And if you know the story, you know that the son went and he just blew his inheritance in no time. And pretty soon he's, he's living on the streets. He doesn't have anything, doesn't have money, doesn't have food to eat. And one day he says, you know what, I'm, I'm going to go back to my father. I need to go back to my father because where else do I have to go? And he goes back to his father and, and we might expect that when he shows up to the father's house that dad might say, have you, have you had enough yet, son? Did, didn't I tell you that something like this was going to happen? That's, that's what I would do. But if you know the story, you know that the father doesn't do those things. He sees his son way down the road. And the implication is that maybe, maybe dad was sitting on the porch just waiting day after day for his son to come home. I don't, I don't know. That's reading into the story maybe a bit. But somehow the, the father sees the son way down the road. And if this were me, I'm, I would sit on the porch and I might fold my arms, right? So, so when son comes up to the porch, he might see that I've got something to say. But in this story, the father sees the son way down the road and he gets up and he runs down the road. 
to greet his son, not to tell his son, I told you so, not to scold his son, but to put his arms around him and say, son, welcome home. And he calls the family and he says, we're going to throw a party. We're going to throw a party because my son who was lost, he's now, he's now home. This is what James is talking about when he says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. James is not, not talking about God exalting us in a way that, that makes us prominent, that makes us the center of attention. He's not talking about that at all. He says that when we humble ourselves by taking on a posture of repentance, and this is, that's the way that we change lanes, is we humble ourselves and we take on this posture of repentance. When we come to the end of ourselves, our Father in heaven is not sitting on the porch with his arms crossed saying it's about time. He, he runs to us and he puts his arms around us and says we're going to throw a party because you're back. That's what James is talking about. And then he finishes out this section by saying, don't speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. And there is only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Don't speak evil against one another. Here we are back to the tongue. Back to the tongue. Don't speak evil against one another. And the one who does speak evil against one another speaks actually against the law. And so the one who speaks evil against one another, James is saying here, puts themselves above the law. If you're the kind of person that likes to look at other people and say, rule breaker, you're putting yourself above the law, according to James. And this is a road sign that tells you that you're driving in the wrong lane. James tells us there's only one lawgiver and one judge, and, and if you don't know this, it's not you, it's not me. None of us are above the lawgiver and the judge, God himself. Remember in grade school, did, did you ever have hall monitors in grade school? Did you have those, kind of the, the goody-goody students that got picked on um, to basically enforce the rules in the hallway? I hated those people, right? We all, hate, we all hate those people because their whole job, their whole existence for that moment in grade school is to point out the people that are breaking the rules. And what James is saying here is like, nobody's a hall monitor. Don't be a hall monitor. Don't try to be one. Because if you try to be a hall monitor, you're putting yourself above the hall monitor, God. Don't do that, he's saying. We tend to think in, in our world that the way that we get ahead is through power, right? We tend to think that, that if, if we're prominent enough, if we're authoritative enough, if we speak boldly enough, th these are the ways that we get ahead in life. We tend to think that if I can go to work and I can put in a hard day's work and I can be elevated in my work, and again, not, not saying that it's, you know, we should put in hard day's work, right? Um, you know, when, when we're allowed to get promotions and we get recognized, praise God for those things. But, but we tend to take things like that and say, this is how I'm going to exercise power. I'm going to be the best worker that there is. And that way I can give my coworkers the what for because I'm better than them. So much of God's economy is counterintuitive to how we do things. And James is finishing off this section by telling us the way that you actually get ahead as a Christian is not in power, but in humility. How is it that Christ came to earth? How is it that God stepped into human flesh? 
Did, did he show up on a horse with a shield and a sword ready to take names? That, that time's coming. But he showed up as a baby. The king of the universe, the creator of all things, the king of kings, the lord of lords, the one who was in the beginning, stepped into human flesh as a humble, meek, feeble, weak baby that needed to be fed and needed to be changed. He came in humility, not in power. He exercised his power through humility. And James is telling us that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble because our God came to us in humility. Now, what I'm not giving you is, is a formula that necessarily says that if you exercise a false humility, that this is going to be the key to unlocking some way of life. There's, somebody's probably written that book. And if you ever find that book on the shelf of the Christian bookstore, it's heresy. There's no formula to this. It makes me think of a, a guy that I used to work for, great employer, great job, great company that I worked for. And one of the things that my employer used to ask us is he would say, do you know how it is that you can get everything that you want in life? And of course, like that's a provocative question. You're going to ask, well, yeah, how, how is it that I can have everything that I want in life? And his answer was that you have to help enough other people get what they want in order to get what you want. And he was a very kind man, very generous, always willing to go above and beyond for his employees. It's part of what made it a great place to work. But as I've thought about this over the years, I realized for him that there was this formula that he was trying to live by that really was just a means to an end at the end of the day. That he really wasn't all that generous. He was just trying to get what he wanted by helping me get what I want. Right? It looked good on the surface. But, but as you dig into this kind of way of thinking, it was just a means to an end for him. And God would oppose that way of thinking. So like the prodigal son, as we bring this to a close, James is telling us that when we submit to God and we resist the devil, that our exaltation will be in that God saves us from the penalty of our pride and our arrogance. God will save us from the penalty of being on the wrong side or in the wrong lane and being in opposition to him. That when we humble ourselves and we change lanes through repentance, that our exaltation will be in that God saves us from being on the other side of him. How cool is that? Father, we'll thank, we're thankful to be here this morning. We're thankful for your word. We're thankful that you love us and that you care for us. God, we're thankful that you have given us a way of repentance, that you've put in all of those that follow you a belief that leads to repentance. And so, Father, I would pray for us this morning that, that everyone here, that we would recognize our own sinfulness, not in a condemning sort of a way, but that we would be convicted by the Spirit in us that you jealously long for, that we would recognize if and when we're driving in the wrong lanes and in those moments that you would grant us faith, that you would grant us repentance so that we could change lanes, that we wouldn't be found on the wrong side of you. And that we would be reminded not so much of our brokenness and our sinfulness, but that we would be reminded more so that you love us and that you care for us in spite of our sinfulness and our brokenness. 
your word tells us, God, that it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. And so may we today be reminded of your kindness that you have given us a way uh, to come to you. We're thankful for that, and we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.